Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Don't you just love Pride in New York City? It's truly one of the best times of the year. Everything is so festive and full of love. I just love how everyone just walks around with a little bit more happiness and joy on their face. I'm so glad we live in a city and at a time when this is the norm. And people are so much more accepting of this. Very true. Though it still stands for the LGBTQ movement, and marches for the rights of those still being oppressed, Pride has begun to become more of a celebration and less of a protest. And to be fair, this change in society has also been mirrored on the Broadway stage. Think about the show we saw last night. I wish we could have seen the original production as well as the revival we saw last night. I feel like they would obviously be two completely different experiences, but you know, just two different completely experiences. Well, hooray for progress! Amen! Hi everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the groundbreaking landmark show, The Kaja Fall. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. We are what we are. We are our own special creation. And we have an incredible show for you today with an equally incredible history to match. We are, of course, talking about La Cage au Fall. This fun-filled and heartwarming show not only stole the hearts of theatergoers, but helped to usher in and forward many social movements of the time. But of course, we are already getting ahead of ourselves. With this show, it is essential that we lay the groundwork first. This show is based on a 1973 French play by Jean Piant. It is the first hit Broadway musical to be centered around a homosexual relationship. 
1978, there was a film of the same name in French directed by Eduardo Moliarno that inspired Alan Carr to do a musical version for him or for himself to make his Broadway debut. He was unable to secure the rights to the film, but was able to get the rights to the play. He then hired J. Preston Allen and Maury Yeston to write the book and score. They called it the Queen of Basin Street because they wanted to Americanize it by setting it in New Orleans. He brought Fritz Holt and Barry Brown to be executive producers. They promptly fired the entire creative team Carr had brought on. After recently working with Arthur Lorentz on a successful revival of Gypsy, the duo producers reached out to him to direct. Supposedly, Lorentz is not a fan of drag or camp entertainment and did not think that Holt and Brown would be able to find investors to finance a gay project at the time. This was the early years of the AIDS epidemic. But he agreed when Harvey Firestein and Jerry Herman committed to the project. The creative team was very politically active, but Herman, after a series of disappointing darker-themed shows, wanted to keep things optimistic, thus setting the charming and colorful tone we adore today. This tone would lead the team to convey their gay-themed message in a more impactful way than they could have imagined. Speaking of the creative team, let's go ahead and introduce them. For the original productions, they are as follows. Music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, book by Harvey Firestein, directed by Arthur Lorentz, choreography by Scott Salmon, set by David Mitchell, costumes by Theoni V. Alderidge, lights by Jules Fisher, sound design by Peter J. Fitzgerald, hair and makeup by Ted Azar. For the 2010 production, which is the one we attended and will be discussing, the design team was as followed. Music and lyrics by Jerry Herman, book by Harvey Firestein, directed by Terry Johnson, choreography by Lynn Page, set by Tim Shortall, costumes by Matthew Wright, lights by Rick Richings, sound design by Jonathan Deans, and hair and makeup by Richard Monney. Because they were not able to use the character of Jean-Michel's birth mother, they chose to focus the plot on George and Albin's relationship. The mother was created for the film, which they did not have the rights to. The team also worried that their simple love story did not have enough physical contact, so Firestein suggested they kiss on the cheek at the end, which is common custom in France, and a gesture that would make the audience more comfortable. One of my favorite facts about the original production is that Lorentz directed Jean Barry, who played George, to always look into George Hearn, who played Albin's, eyes so that the audience could sense the depth uh, of the couple's feelings for each other. Also fun fact, The Birdcage from 1996, starring Robin Williams and Nathan Lane, is an English language version of the 1978 film. And for some fun party trivia, La Cage au Fall translates to the Cage of Mad Women. The show first opened on Broadway on August 21st, 1983 at the Palace Theater after its preview run up in Boston. It ran on Broadway for 1,761 performances, closing on November 15th, 1987. In 2004, a revival opened up at the Marquis Theater and ran for 229 performances. The most recent revival 
Can-canned into the Long Acre Theater on April 18, 2010. It would run for 433 performances, closing on May 1, 2011. The original production would go on to win six Tony Awards, including Best Musical and Score. The 2004 production would garner two Tonys. And finally, the 2010 revival was nominated for an incredible 11 Tony Awards. That evening, it would chase away with three for Best Revival, Best Direction for Terry Johnson, and Best Actor in a Musical for Douglas Hodge, who played Albin. So, let's go down to the French Riviera itself now as we dive into our story. The show starts with George, the master of ceremonies, as he welcomes the audience to his Saint-Tropez drag nightclub. The chorus line, known as the La- Les Cagelles, appear and introduce themselves to the audience. George and his spouse, Alben, have, been ha- have lived happily together for many years in an apartment above La Cage with their maid, Jakob. Alben is a drag queen and the star performer of La Cage au Fall, under the alias of Zaza. As Albin prepares to perform a little more mascara, Georges' 24-year-old son Jean-Michel, the offspring of a confused youthful liaison with a woman named Sybil, arrives home with the news that he is engaged to Anne Dinden. Georges is reluctant to approve of Jean-Michel's engagement, but Jean-Michel assures his father that he is in love with Anne. Unfortunately, her father is the head of the traditional family and morality party, whose stated goal is to close the local drag clubs. Anne's parents want to meet their daughter's future in-laws. Jean-Michel has lied to his fiancée, describing Georges as a retired diplomat. Jean-Michel pleads with Georges to tell Albin to absent himself and his flamboyant behaviors for the visit and for Georges to redecorate the apartment in a more suitable fashion. Jean-Michel asks Georges to invite Sybil, who has barely seen him since his birth, to dinner instead of Albin. Albin returns from the show to greet his son when Georges suggests they take a walk. George takes Albin to the Promenade Café, owned by Monsieur and Madame Renault, where he attempts to soften Albin's emotions before telling him of Jean-Michel's request. Before George can break the news to him, Albin suggests that they hurry back to La Cage to make it in time for the next show. They arrive in time, and Albin takes the stage once more as Zaza. While Albin is performing, George and Jean-Michel quickly redecorate the house. While Albin is changing for his next number, he notices the two carrying his gowns and demands to know what's going on. Georges finally tells Albin of Jean-Michel's plan and expects Albin to explode with fury, but he remains silent. Albin rejoins the Cagels on stage, tells them to leave, and begins to sing alone in defiance of Jean-Michel, stating that he is proud of who he is and refuses to change for anyone. He throws his wig at Georges and departs in a huff. 
Act two starts the next morning where George finds Alban at the Promenade Cafe after his abrupt departure and apologizes. He then suggests to Alban that he dress up for dinner as a macho Uncle Al. Alban is still upset, but reluctantly agrees to act like a heterosexual for Jean-Michel, with the help of Monsieur and Madame Renaud. George successfully teaches Alban to abandon his flamboyancy. Back at the chastely redesigned apartment, George shows Uncle Al to Jean-Michel. Jean-Michel doesn't like the idea and expresses his dislike for Albin's lifestyle. George angrily reminds Jean-Michel of how good of a mother Albin has been to him. They then receive a telegram from Jean-Michel's mother, Sybil, um, that she is not coming as Anne's parents arrive. Hoping to save the day, Albin appears as Jean-Michel's buxom 40-year-old mother in pearls and sensible shoes. The nervous Jacob burns the dinner, so a trip to a local restaurant, Chez Jacqueline, belonging to an old friend of Albin and George's, is quickly arranged. No one has told Jacqueline of the situation, and she asks Albin, as Zaza, for a song to which he hesitate, hesitantly agrees. Everyone in the restaurant begins to take part in the song, causing Albin to yield to the frenzy of performance and tear off his wig at the song's climax, revealing his true identity. Back at the apartment, the Dindons plead with their daughter to abandon her fiancé, for they are appalled by his homosexual parents, but she is in love with Jean-Michel and refuses to leave him. Jean-Michel, deeply ashamed of the way he has treated Albin, asks for his forgiveness, which is lovingly granted. The Dindons prepare to depart, but their way is blocked by Jacqueline, who has arrived with the press ready to photograph the notorious anti-homosexual activist with Zaza. Georges and Albin have a proposal. If Anne and Jean-Michel may marry, Georges will help the Dindons escape through Lacage downstairs. George bids the audience farewell while the Cajels prepare the Dindons for the grand finale. George then introduced the Dindons dressed in drag as members of the nightclub's review and they escaped the paparazzi with Jean-Michel and Anne behind them. With everyone gone, Albin enters and he and George briefly sing of their love for each other before sharing a kiss. The, the end. end. Let's um, well, let's talk about the show. I have some thoughts about this show. Let me hold on. I can predict what they are. You loved it. Well, I and mean, just when you thought that you had some critique for it, you went, "Nah, I love it." No, I did. I love the show. I really did. I love the show from all angles. I love the story. I love the message. I thought it was. First of all, I think the the message, the sh you know, and the story, it's so timeless and relevant. Oh, yeah, because it doesn't matter how far we've come. There's always going to be, I almost called them negative Nellies. Well, <laughs> there's always negative gonna be, Nellies out there's there. There's always going to be haters everywhere. Well, and and I, I can't believe that I had no idea about this show until we went. Well, I think you knew about the show in the form of the film and the birdcage. 
Had you not seen the Birdcage mm-hmm. yet? I never saw the Birdcage until you had me watch it. Ago. Yeah. Oh God, that's such a great film. Um, but I mean, the other the point I'm trying to make is it's not just about acceptance of homosexuality. I mean, just acceptance in general. Yeah. You know, to see these people who are different from society that work so hard to give a loving home to their son, and then for him to want to try to make them more like the status quo. And instead coming around to realize I don't need my parents or my family to look like what people think a family look like because we're a family because we say so. It's like RuPaul says, family isn't blood, family's who you choose. Mm -hmm. And the whole love is love kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that. And I think that message comes out of here. I thought when we saw the show, the acting was absolutely superb. Oh, 100%. It was... Everything you wanted from every single one of the characters. Every single one. Um, one of the things I remember the most, you know, um, and, and they featured this in the Tony Awards, which I loved, is, you know, the show starts, you know, Kelsey Grammer gets up there. I bid you open your eyes. You have arrived to La Cage. Oh, fall. And the opening numbers, we are what we are. Mm-hmm. And there's all the Cajels. We are. And they all come down to do like a feature dance move. Mm-hmm. Well, the last one to come up is like the oldest one of the group. And they don't really like do a high kick or a pirouette or something. They just kind of like saunter forward and they give this like, I'm too old for this kind of look, you know? And I love that. Like I was like, yes, you all have a different personality and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's what, you know, because in some shows, it's not that like ensemble members get lost. It's sometimes you are like wearing seven different hats because there's so many different ensemble roles to fill where I felt like I don't I don't feel like necessarily the show is an ensemble. There's just so many minor characters, but they're fully developed. Yes. Every every minor character, every ensemble character has a full on story. Yes, I can see I can see that one hundred percent. Every Kajel had a story, you know. Every everybody who was on stage had a full on story. They 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 full on contributed to the way the story went, and I loved loved that. That just elevated the acting. Um, the look of the cast was amazing. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And I mean, okay, look, this is again, this is still the time of naive little Andrew. I'm very naive little Hope, and. Um, we're still early theater goers. We're, we're, I would put us not necessarily the novice, but the, the semi-professional world of theater going. And um, I just remember the Cajels being like, oh my gosh, look at those legs. You know, mm-hmm. look at look at the shape of the, these these are men and look at the way they look. You know, now, 11 years later, I'm like, oh, well, a lot of course boys look like that. Mm-hmm. You know, but at the time I was like, wow. And at this point in time when we saw the show, we had just discovered RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. So we had a whole new appreciation of drag. And this only furthered our appreciation of this show. Yes. Well, and especially because I didn't really, like I said, I didn't know really anything about the show except for you're like, Kelsey Grammer's in it, so you're going to love it. And in my mind, the only thing I knew of Kelsey Grammer was Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons. Not even Frasier, like not even any of that stuff. I was just like, oh, Sideshow Bob. Okay, cool. Let's go see the show. Yeah. and but, the- <laughs> but then, you know, as we were watching it, I had no idea it was about drag performers. I, you know, I had a sense after the Tonys and I saw like this, the, the promotion, but I really didn't know what the story was. You didn't know there was a love story in it. I didn't know it was didn't... a love story. And I also didn't know how groundbreaking the show was when it first premiered. 
Right, well, see, you didn't get that from the revival. You didn't get the groundbreakingness, but once you saw well, but it... but I understood why everyone was obsessed with it. But you saw it, and then you went, and you were like, I want to know more about it. And uh-huh. that's when you were like, ah. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Um, let's let's break things down just a little bit more. So let's, let's start with set. So this was the first show I ever saw at the Long Acre Theater. And I remember they took out a bunch of the orchestra seats to, In the tur- front. to turn them into uh, cabarets, like cabaret uh, tables and chairs. And it was really awesome and it really added to the performance. Now, did they have like the pisserelle, like the... <laughs> sorry, the what? The the. The Pissarel. What I, is it called? I don't, the... They had restrooms at the theater, yes. <laughs> no, like, it's like where that apron comes out and goes around. It's called a Pissarel. That's what I learned from Dolly, but I can't, I don't know if I'm saying it right. I gotta they... be honest, anyone listening to this episode who speaks French are probably going, you do not speak <laughs> it right at all. Um, I, I Passerelle? Don't... <laughs> I don't know. Passerelle? No, Passerelle. Pass the Ducci. Um... <laughs> Listen, I don't remember, but I do remember like them having steps, and they also had a catwalk that came out. Okay. So, but I don't remember about the pisser <laughs> around. Don't make fun of stage. me. I have to. That's a new word, and I mean, I'm not going to doubt you, considering you work in the Broadway theater. But I'm just like, wow, that's uh, that's a word. That's that happened here on Stage Whisper. Happy New Year Listen. to us. That happened. Um, I also thought that the set was simple yet ornate. Uh, what set pieces there were were like super detailed and ornate, very reflective of the characters themselves. Because again, I mean, on our last episode, we talked about how it was like one room, so it took up the entire stage and it was filled with all these details and that. We're back to a musical where there are several different settings, so they're only using you know that like three wall small setting or what have you to set up the the, the place, you know. Mm-hmm. Like when they go to the beach, you might just have a couple of things if you have anything. When they brought certain things like the Promenade Cafe or what have you, what few items there were, they were so detailed and whatnot that it was reflective of the characters. These were not poor people by any means of the imagination. They were, and if they were, they were definitely the kind of people that had the champagne taste on the beer budget. Mm-hmm. So, um, I need you to know that it is called a parcerelle. <laughs> because it is a French word that means footbridge or gangway. Okay. Um, I, I or just... it, it can be a small catwalk, catwalk so, that extends from one side of the stage to the other. But what you're talking about is what they have at like the Tonys and that, where it comes around the orchestra. Yes, like so what the they had at Hello Dolly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Ooh, passerelle, not pisserelle. We apologize to anyone from France oh. or French-speaking people. I mean, listen, did you hear me butcher all the other French terms? I know. French I... is not my language. I mean, yeah. Moving on. Yeah. Anyways, beautiful set. <sighs> the lights. The lights. <laughs> the lights were gorgeous. Um, gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. I remember how beautifully soft and, like, loving the color of the light was. I can't really describe what the color was, but when it was they were singing the sand song. It was rose and purples and had rose and purple hues. Mm-hmm. That was the gist of the entire show. Mm-hmm. Um, there was not this harsh white to it all, and it was not, what did, what did you call it a couple shows ago, the off-white? 
It wasn't that either. What it was is like it was lit, but there was always a splash of rose or purple to it, mm-hmm. which created this warmth and or ro- this like, romantic. It was romantic yet with a touch of sadness. Yes. Well, and I mean, that's the thing is I, I the clips I've seen of the original, I feel like they were in blue, which demonstrated that almost like longing and sadness. But in this production, it was in purple. I remember there's just like a hint of purple. It was almost like it was at sunset. Mm-hmm. Kind of thing, or even a, it was at sunrise, because um, I believe if, if memory serves me right, when George goes to Alban uh, to apologize, that's when the first time we hear "Song on the Sand," you know, mm-hmm. and the second time we hear it, it's after the after Jean Michel defends him, and it's at mm-hmm. the end, blah 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 blah. But the the hues were rose and purple, and it created that warmness, and even in the bigger scenes. Um, though they were kind of like orangish, like uh, the best of times are now on that. Mm-hmm. Again, it still was, it stemmed from more of a rose orange or, you know, and it, it was warmth and welcoming and love and family. That That's kind of the ideas and the emotions you got from this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciated that. To be able to incorporate that, basically a theme. The lighting had a theme and it was all the way through. I loved it. We would be remiss if we just, you know, moved on to everything else in the podcast and just skipped, you know, the obvious duh, which is the, the costumes. costumes. I mean, where do we begin? Ugh. They were I gorgeous. Mean, they were they were just what they needed to be. I mean, I feel like if you're going to do a show about drag queens, it's really easy to go Priscilla Queen of the Desert. Like, it's really easy to go big or go home. But I remember the costumes were just... They were just what they needed to be. They weren't so extravagant that, you know, we were watching RuPaul's Drag Race. But they weren't so bleh that it was like this was a a down-and-out nightclub. You know what I mean? Yeah, it wasn't... I know exactly what you're trying to say. It was... Pageant? Well, no, no. It was fish. It was fish. It was serving fish. It was definitely... Mm -hmm female impersonation without being a caricature. That's where I'm going Yeah, so with it. it wasn't necessarily super campy. It wasn't Lady Bunny, but it also wasn't, you know, so female impersonating that you were like, you would do a double take, if that makes sense. They, they There was just enough that made you go, oh, there, that is a man in a dress. But if, for a lot of them, for most of them, especially for the Cajels, um... You were having that, like, wait, maybe there's a few women mixed in there. Oh, no, no, they're all men, you know. Mm-hmm. It really made you do a double take. Um, there was marabou and feathers just everywhere. So what is marabou, Andrew? Marabou is a uh, fabric, a, a craft fabric. It's like a feather. I know I've worked with it. What, what is it? Is it? Is it feathers? It's feathers, isn't it? Like a boa, right? It's feathers, yeah. Yeah. So marabou and feathers. It's basically marabou. Look, I wrote that down and I was like, <laughs> I think those are the same thing. And I was like, well, I'm just going to put, well, because there's ostrich feathers in this show. I know mm-hmm. that. So, Ugh. But yeah. yeah. Just making sure, you, you know. And beads, the contoured gowns and the gorgeous shoes to match and beadwork and just everything. I mean, it was head to toe. They had everything down perfectly. And I, I do want to mention that the heels were not these, like, half-inch heels, like, oh, we're going to cheat this, and you're, you know, it's a man in a dress kind of thing. Like, these were heels. These were, like, pumps that these 
these men were dancing in. Oh, and, yeah. They weren't nothing, like, tiny. No, no, no. And it was impressive. It was great. Um, the dichotomy between the patrons of La Cage Fall and the Cajels and that, you know, and, and, and Jacqueline and that. Oh, and yeah. then Anne's parents... Uh, and in turn, Jean-Michel's parent, like, you know, uh, when, when, when Albin and, and um, George dress up as, as Jean-Michel's, you know, uh, uh, diplomat parents, was amazing because you had so many colors. And I, I, I don't want to say loose, but it just looked fun and relaxed and celebrative when you were on the Cajet side or the Lacar side. But when you were on Anne's parents or that more conservative, it was beige, it was beige and it was Gray kind of and... just boxy. And you just mm-hmm. felt like a suit and it was like, ugh. But everybody else, it was like form-fitting and comfortable and confident and accepting. And it was brilliant, mm-hmm. you know. And, and, and if, I mean, that that had to be a thought in the costume designer's mind. Of making sure that these costumes communicated two different thoughts, not just color wise, but for the way it fit and the way it made the person feel, obviously. Yeah, well, and there was confidence everywhere. Um, like when you were dealing, like in the costuming, um, as far as like the the Kajals were going. Yes. Um, and I just think that, especially um, for those of you who don't know, um, oftentimes people will confuse, um, performers in the show and like who are Kajels and think that they're drag performers and they are drag queens and you know they're used to doing this stuff all the time and more often than not that's not necessarily the case they've learned to do this for the show right um and so everything like their makeup their dancing in those heels they might they that doesn't mean that some of them haven't had that experience but the majority of them are not drag queen performers. And right. so to be able to have this confidence in these costumes, um, I think it takes a lot of skill as a costume designer to do that. And um, it's not so much, I think, now a matter of, like, I'm a man in a dress in front of an audience. Much more of a, I've never danced or moved in heels before. Right, I've never worn kind of a corset. Fabric. Yeah, and I've never done a quick change in this kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, when I ran the show, that was my actor's biggest fear, is getting in and out of makeup. And then, of course, putting on their bras and, and their the tights, tights and everything. And I was like, mm-hmm. we, we do this because- all the time, but it's just with women. It's like, we're, don't worry, we, we know what we're doing. You, It's possible. You just got to feel confident and da-da-da-da-da. Rarely have I ever met an actor that just wanted to be like, do I look good, though? And it's like... Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to let you look like crap unless you're supposed to look like crap. Um, and I think we would be remiss if we, as we're speaking about costumes, if we didn't talk about your favorite subject the and wigs. mine. The wigs. Yes, that fruit on top, the wigs. Yes, so something that I have learned um, is, you know, it's I... It's not called a piss roll? Do you know what? Oh, God, <laughs> I'm never going to live that down. No. Um, I, as a wig you know, person, um, designing and or running a show, I'm always afraid of frizziness. Um, I mean, but then again, I grew up in the early 2000s, like sleek, straight hair, you know, so didn't want to see any of this frizz or fuzz. Um, but there's an art form to the divine frizz as Paul Huntley used to call it. Um, and so part of the reason why these wigs are so successful and beautiful is because, we know they're wigs, but they also have this fuzzy, realistic quality to them mm-hmm. um, that just 
makes them feel real. Um, and I never realized that until I started like going back and looking at photos and then I've learned what I have learned about it. And when you say feel real, are you talking about like they feel like real wigs? Like when we look at the, when I think about the Kajels, I'm thinking of the higher the have. The higher the hair, the closer to God kind of thing. You mean like we are looking at a real wig? Or are you talking about when we're dealing with like um, when Alben plays uncle or, or the mother, right? That wig looks real in that sense. Like, I'm sorry, I'm trying to understand. Like when you say the real frizz, does it look like a real wig or real hair? It looks like real hair. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. So yeah, because, yeah. I mean, obviously with drag, you have your super um, like... Those big wigs that kind of frizz a little bit because yes. they're just so big. And, well, and you want to see that they look like real hair but just larger than life. And then sometimes with your drag look, you want something that looks, looks... natural. Or you want something that is extremely unnatural. You know, and so there's three different levels. You have the natural, the in-between, and the, and the unnatural where you can tell that it's a wig and you want to see crisp, clean lines like you see in... Uh, Glinda on Wicked, how you can see clear definition. Like the curls and, you're talking about? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything's nice and smooth. And so this lives in that, like the these wigs live in that realm of you know they're a wig, but you know that they're real hair. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing like particularly, because like I said, I'm thinking of the Kajels who I remember them having big hair and being like, obviously those are wigs. Obvious. Yes, obviously. But they didn't look like Party City. Exactly. They didn't look like fake wigs. They looked like real human hair wigs. Well, yeah. They were I mean, just not, real. Now, real. even me wouldn't think they're real human hair. I would just be like, those are really good wigs. But flip that around with like Zaza's wigs, right? Mm-hmm. Zaza looks like more real hair. If that makes sense, it looks. Well, are you talking about Zaza when Zaza Zaza or when Zaza when Zaza either when 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 Albin is Zaza or when Albin is um, the mom? Mm-hmm. It looks more um, realistic. Okay. So we 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 know that um, Albin is is a is a is an, a drag queen, a, a female impersonator, right? Mm-hmm. So we know that it's a wig, but it looks more natural where the Kajels, we're looking at it and we're like, yeah, I've never really seen a woman that has hair like that. Right, but it looks good and it looks natural. It looks, yeah, it looks right. The eye goes, that's correct. But also you're just like, I know what I'm seeing kind of thing. So that that's what I'm getting at with the natural thing where I'm like, yes. Zaza looks real and natural if that was a real woman. The Kajels look, more fantasy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, here's the thing. Did y'all ever realize that there were so many levels of this just on the way you finish a wig? Not even, you know, that's I just I feel a like small you could just wig. give us an episode on wigs alone. Oh, I would love to. Welcome to the wig corner. Okay. So, but I feel like we've we've exhausted the wig conversation. Yes, but I just feel like it's important especially when you are dealing with um you know, female impersonation and drag artists to be able to understand that there are those three different levels. I agree. And I think as we go along and we see more shows that incorporate that, that's very important because you can't be looking a mess. And you also have to understand that when you're trying to give that, what depending on what you're trying to give, what you're trying to communicate and, and yes, what you're trying to display on the stage. Because if you were truly trying to display a woman on stage, but you're using a male performer, then you have to have a certain look that makes audience believe. But if you're trying to go for the impersonation or the comic effect, if you will, or something like that, then you have to go a different way. And it still has to look put together. If you're going for the like, 
1960s where men with mustaches and we're dressing up like women because we're da, 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 you know then it's mm-hmm. like okay you can look like the party city wig that's okay right or like you know the kind of hair that if you bl- put them out in a hurricane it's not gonna move but at the know. same time you have drag and all of that it's an art it mm-hmm. is a true art and i've said this before i, I just want to put this out there the to me the only reality tv show i watch and the only one worth watching is RuPaul's Drag Race. And the things that And these... the Great British Baking Show. Okay, but <laughs> RuPaul's Drag Race. Yes. And the reason why is because the things that these people do blow my mind. I, I've, I've seen other reality TV shows and I'm like, nobody on these shows does anything like monumentally really special. I watch RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm like, literally they're making outfits out of trash or curtains or wigs or christmas decorations yeah they i mean they're literally getting something thrown at them they have to make these gorgeous one-of-a-kind outfits and put together a whole look a beaten face a wig it is a true art form that you can't just go and be like okay it's just a man in a dress it's no big deal no no drag is mainstream now you need to know your stuff and you have to respect that art form and really make sure that if you're incorporating that amount of show, it looks polished and it looks right. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, what are you doing? Exactly. Well, and especially living in a universe where now we do have, like, drag itself isn't its own subcategory anymore. There are different categories of drag. Yeah. So. Okay. Back on track. Moving right along. Um, I, I want to mention the direction. And I want to focus on this revival. Because I felt like the director had a total understanding of the material and how to bring it to life, especially for a modern audience. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason being is, you know, the materials dated back in the 80s? Yes. 80s, yeah. Um, and this is 30 years later. Um, we're dealing with the same material and yet it felt fresh and new. So mm-hmm. being able to not change the material you have, but change it if that makes sense change the emphasis on a word the positioning of staging something of that nature to make it feel fresh and modern and communicate that message to a modern audience right because at this point you know in the 80s when this show first came out we were just trying to get people to accept that homosexuals were there and or they're here and their career and get used to it and when we get to the 2010 to 2010 Gay marriage still isn't legal, but our idea of accepting homosexuality has gone way up. So then how do you... We've accepted homosexuality, but we haven't accepted everything that comes with it. Exactly. And so for the show to be able to alter that message just slightly, instead of... We didn't need to... Accept two gay men kissing. We need to accept two men being in a long-term relationship and what what perceived as a marriage. Well, and I think less about that is the first time we saw this show out on the Broadway stage, it was about humanizing rather than dehumanizing um, the two characters that, you know, people who are in homosexual relationships are real people and they love and feel just like everyone else. That, I feel like, was the main point of the first time Mm -hmm. the show came out. It was less about that when we revived it here because we already saw them as humans. Now that's where it did need to shift to being about this is a marriage and this is acceptable, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I think that that really is the difference that you see because we we didn't need to be convinced that they loved each other. We knew how they could love each other. We needed to love them. Exactly, because we needed to, 
we wanted to cheer for their union to be recognized. Right. I also think that the director really had to bring to life the comedy that existed in the script and bring it new life. They didn't really change the script, but what's great is that we change as a society and an audience. So some jokes that people found funny then, we may not have found funny now, but there were elements in the show that maybe then didn't land, but now it was like, oh my gosh, we should emphasize this because this is going to really be funny now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, 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 and there were things that weren't socially acceptable 30 years ago that were socially acceptable now. Like I loved when Douglas Hodge at the Tony sat on Denzel Washington's lap and then gave her home. And I was like, Ooh, like what was that? Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have been okay back in the eighties mm-hmm. on national TV. We all had a guffaw at that in 2010. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like that, that's the director being like, we can push this envelope to here. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it really helped allow the material to have new life in the new time that now existed where the material is facing new issues of the day. It updated it so that we were we were dealing with the issues of the day and addressing them. <laughs> lastly, lastly, <laughs> we got to talk about the music. This show contained, for the late great Jerry Herman, the simple... The simple, hummable show tune. And really, when you think about that phrase, the only phrase that comes to mind is la da 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 And I'm young and in love. But you know, like every time I've heard you say that phrase on other episodes, that's all I think of is a like simple hummable tune. That's what comes in my brain is la. Because the show is truly memorable. It, it the really music is. is just it's quaint, it's fun, it's, it's bouncy, it's iconic. It's Jerry Herman knew exactly what he was doing. Jerry Herman's like a modern uh, uh, Irving Berlin, where he just put himself in his apartment and he just cranked out the the music. You know, here's mm-hmm. we are what we are, and here's this other song. You know, and the other thing that I I, I hope Jerry Herman was proud of, and I'm sure he was, but his legacy lives on, is that he created true anthems in this show for the LGBTQ community, particularly in I Am What I Am, which became a, and it became a gay anthem and also the anthem for uh, the AIDS crisis. Right. And I'm mainly referring to when I say I Am What I Am, don't be confused with We Are What We Are. I Am What I Am is the song Alvin sings at the, at end, the end of, of Act One. Um, and it starts very slow and just sad, but it builds to this very powerful just... Mm. Well, and I was reading a story about how that song came to be and how it came into the show. And part of it was um, there was something happening politically that I can't remember what it was, but Harvey Firestein was just angry and upset as and passionate as he is as a human. And he came in the door and he was just like, well, I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I am what I am. And it just kind of turned into this like, oh, yeah. You know, like, I am what I am. That needs to be in the show. Politically, and- getting Harvey Firestein angry in the 80s. It's the Reagan <laughs> administration. I'm sure it was not acknowledging it was the gay of- community at all. It could have been not acknowledging the AIDS crisis as well. I mean, there was that big thing where they were expecting him to acknowledge AIDS mm-hmm. as an epidemic, and he just ignored it altogether. Mm-hmm. So, but I'm I'm glad that just this anger from Harvey Firestein inspired (laughs) Jerry Herman to write this song because yeah it just and even today I mean I've heard the disco version everything I still hear it at Pride and everything they're Mm -hmm. still performing it and I'm like don't 
don't ever forget. Don't ever forget this. One, don't ever forget the show, but don't ever forget what this was used for. Mm-hmm. This was a, a, a banner song. The show had several notable cast members in the 2010 company, including Kelsey Grammer, Christopher Sieber, Douglas Hodge, Harvey Firestein, Jeffrey Tambor, A.J. Shively, who made his Broadway debut, and Robin De Jesus. It's also worth noting the 2004 company featured Gary Beach and Gavin Creel. Let's talk about the impact this show has had on the theater and its history. And this is the part that I have been like. This, this is the part I'm very excited about. So here to talk comes about. the second episode of this. <laughs> Listen. So let's let's start with theatrical impact. So this is the first show um, to center around a homosexual relationship. So it should be noted this is not the first show. To talk about homosexuality, to feature a homosexual couple, or anything like that. This is the first show to center around a homosexual relationship. Relationship. And I think that that's important, is it showing a... It's it's the first show to show a monogamous heterosexual... Or, sorry, a monogamous homosexual relationship at at the center of the story. Yeah. Um, You know, and... Because if you ever have the opportunity to take, like, here, uh, queer history, um, or even just queer uh, history as it uh, lives queer in theater, theater yeah. that's what I'm trying to look for. Um, it is it is truly mind-blowing, you know, how people could have been in denial that this stuff was existing when there's been art about it for centuries. It's also worth noting that this was the first um, successful gay show and gay musical ever on Broadway. Um, particularly particularly because it was financially successful. And as ha- Harvey Firestein uh, is quoted saying, and this is America, and unless you can make money, it don't count. So, La Cage au Fall, hardly the first gay musical on Broadway, but the first gay musical to make money, and that's what makes it count, end quote. So, you know, there had been other, pre- there had been previously other shows there have been previous other gay shows, um, but this was the first one to really make money and bring the audiences in and, and really get the acclaim and esteem, and that's what made it the first successful, mm-hmm. you know, show. So when people kind of go, this was the usherance of, I guess, the gay movement on the Broadway, we know that there were previous shows that I involved mean, listen, it. But- May West was writing, um, you know, queer... Oh, plays yeah. in the eighteen in the late eighteen hundreds, and there like, were there were Nances as they were called. Yeah, and back Oscar Wilde. Yeah, you know, but it's, they never made money. They weren't successful. They didn't get the acclaim they deserved. And and so this was the first one to do it, and this blew the doors off. And this is where the tidal wave came in, where you started seeing other shows. Exactly, and I also think it's worth noting that in the year this was in the Tonys, 1983, um, it beat out Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George. Which was a big deal because, you know, Sondheim, who had just come off of a big flop, thought about leaving the theater to write murder mysteries. Um, That's when the Hal Prince-Stephen Sondheim relationship fell apart. 
And then Sondheim met uh, James Lapine, and they thought, well, maybe, James Lapine said, well, maybe you and I can come up with an idea for a show. And Stephen Sondheim famously said, oh, I would never do something like that. <laughs> and out of it, they wrote Sunday in the Park with George, which is an absolutely beautiful and is- brilliant show. And to live in a world where those two shows existed at the same time. As new works. Yeah, and you know... Thinking about the actors who were on stage at the time, I'm trying to think of what's his name who originated the role of uh, in Sunday in the Park with George. Uh, uh, he played opposite Bernadette Peters. And he's uh, uh, Mandy Patinkin. I was like, he's on TikTok. But yeah, Mandy <laughs> Patinkin, Bernadette Peters in that show. I mean, what a time to be alive, you know? Yeah. Um, but that really speaks to just the level of talent that exists at this time. Um, according to Playbill radio program director Robert Viejas, La Caja Fall predated the widespread Ellen, Will and Grace, and Queer Eye type recognition. La Cage, uh, as it's quoted, La Cage opened in a time when gays were just starting to be accepted and homosexuality was just starting to be talked about openly. End quote, Viejas said. Quote, a chorus line opened the door and then came Harvey Firestein's Torch Song trilogy. Lacage took it a step further, showing to a general audience that gays could actually form stable, long-term relationships and even raise children. The message of Lacage could be phrased as, honor your mother, even if she's a man. That was a revelation at the time, at least in the mass media, end quote. Right, and I really think that, you know, you had... Huge success with a chorus line that really just kind of opened the, like, slightly opened the door, just a little ajar to be like, hey, listen Peaked to Peaked in and you're like, hello. Hey, these are homosexual themes that we'd like you to pay attention to. And we're like, hmm. But we all kind of knew that that was there. Like, it wasn't, it didn't introduce anything new and it didn't no, push it the was, envelope anywhere. Like, you weren't. No, it just, it just kind of slightly opened the door just a smidge and just be like, hey, we're here. Remember us? And then Lakash came in and just blew the door open. Because and, we were seeing a family. Exactly. We were like, listen, anything you heterosexuals can do, we can do too. Well, yeah, and that's the thing is I feel like prior to this, homosexuals were depicted as gypsies, as loners. You didn't ever see a fully developed relationship, community, family, or anything like that. It it was was demonized, you know. You had multiple partners. You couldn't be, you know, there was no trust. And, and, I mean, uh, even in a chorus line, you don't necessarily see the happiest of endings for everyone who is gay in that show. Mm-hmm. Where in Lacage, it's like, no, not only do, is this a family, but look at all these people that there's a community and a family bigger than Albin and George and Jean-Michel. They're, the Cajels are family, and it's one big family. Jacqueline's family. It's one big support system. It is, even if they are loved by their family, they... They formed their own family and support and community, and I felt like that was reflective of what was happening outside of the theater. And it These finally... kids who were coming out to their families and being shunned away, but they were finding their tribe, and they were finding their their community, and they were forming their own. And, and, and that, before then, you know, it wasn't the norm to be gay, and you were ousted, and you were shunned. And now that it was becoming something that it was okay to be, it still was like, yeah, but you're gay, and I don't want anything to do with you. But and because theater holds a mirror up to society, it held the mirror up to society and said, look, our created families are okay. 
We have love. We have acceptance. And this is an okay lifestyle. And there's another thing that I that, that it did, but I'm going to get to it because it's more of a social impact. But I want to move on with more theatrical impacts. You mentioned earlier it was the first musical to humanize the drag world and drag queens in general. So I felt like that should be restated. And um, also, it can be argued that the theatrical and societal impact cannot be separated because the show changed so much in society and the entertainment industry. And right. I think that's fair. The theatrical impacts and the social impacts, they go hand in hand. You can't oh, have one without the other. So let's go ahead and just switch gears and move right into social impact. Um, so societal impacts. So, I mean, we have the first romantic kiss of same-sex partners happening. Yes. And this is not just, you know, like in the 80s when it was done, it was a kiss on the cheek. Because a kiss on the lips was going to be too much for the audience of the time. Or at least that's how it was perceived, which I firmly believe that it could have been hit or miss. But, you know, I'm also not from that time. Yeah, this was the original production to the kiss on the cheek. I believe memory serves me right. And again, I am an old man. And I have to search back. But I'm pretty sure in the 2010 revival, they actually kiss kiss. They did. They yeah. did actually kiss kiss. Now, I cannot say for a definitive fact that in 2010, that was the first, you know, Gay kiss on stage? No, yeah, no. it wasn't. No. But the fact that it had the material and it started the ball rolling as a romantic kiss. Like, you can have... Well, because anything. you had the kiss and rent between Angel and Collins. That's right. But it just also goes to show that even a kiss on the chick... On the chick? <laughs> a kiss on the cheek can still be seen as a romantic gesture. You don't have to be lip-locking to show romance. It's intimacy. Exactly. And, it's and I think that it's that intimacy that really just showed how human these characters were. So I mentioned about the whole creating a community because a lot of people in the gay community were ostracized when they came out. Um, and everyone pulled up a seat. This is going to be a soapbox moment here. Here we go. Gather on children. Um, when this show premiered and ran, this was at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Um, and I, th and, and it said, it has been said a lot that the show could have been a lot more successful had it not been for the AIDS epidemic. Um, and if you are a younger listener, I mean, there's a lot of great documentaries out there. Um, but the play, The Normal Heart, or if you can look up things involving Larry Kramer, not the film The Normal Heart, but the play The Normal Heart or Larry Kramer, or if you can or look, look up Torch Song Trilogy by Hardy or if Hardy. you can look up the book um, Act Out about the AIDS movement and that. But if you can find any of this where you can learn about the AIDS crisis here in America in the 80s, it is appalling. The way that it was handled, the way that it was perceived is absolutely shameful and appalling. The fact that this was known as the gay disease, that it was ignored for so long, that I, people couldn't get proper health care. Anyway, I could go on and on. But the fact is that there was this huge health epidemic happening and not a lot of people doing anything about it and yes it was affecting at that at the beginning primarily just a community and now we know more and we know why but i digress when with the the bad information that was being spread about aids when people would come out they would be ostracized because it's like oh so now you're going to subject yourself to a life of not only being different from society, but you're going to have a short life because now you'll get AIDS and die. Well, and also it was starting to be assumed that if you were gay, that meant you had AIDS. Right. So this show was definitely showing people that 
you know, we need to love and accept and communities exist, not just within a true like bloodline family, but elsewhere. But like you had said, it would hold up a mirror and show society like communities and families as they're just set up between friends and whatnot exist elsewhere because at that time that community was banding together to create its own family to take care of itself since nobody else seemed to. And so we had mentioned already that the anthem from the show, I Am What I Am, uh, came to be so for the AIDS movement and for the, um, for the LGBTQ community. But did you know uh, this is a very, there's a very special and historic relationship between the Kaja Fall and Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. I didn't know that. Every year around this time, the entire Broadway theater community comes together uh, to raise money for Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And prior to, as well as prior to the Easter annual bonnet competition. And in 1987, this now highly anticipated annual fundraising event began backstage at the Palace Theater when a few of the original Kajels in the original production of the Kajal Fall decided to amuse themselves between shows with, I should say, a fashion show. <laughs> uh, someone thought also to make it um, a fundraiser and $18,000 was raised for then a fledgling organization, Broadway Cares. So this organization now Every Broadway theater participates in it. There are, you've got the the Broadway Backwards, you've got Broadway Bears, you've got, um, you know, the Red Buckets everywhere. You've got the Easter Bonnet mm-hmm. um, competition. competition, which you will be heavily involved in this year over at Music Man. I'm very excited <laughs> to participate. You know, Heather, Heather and them have already told me all about it. I'm very you've, excited. You've got the... Um, the street market sale, the Playbill street market sale. You've got all these things now that benefit Broadway Cares Equity Fights AIDS. And it started with the show mm-hmm. and these actors who are seeing their friends suffer and their die. Family. Yeah. Suffer and die from this um, horrible, horrible disease. And instead of waiting for someone to do something, use what they had, use the skills they had to do something. And they've started a movement. And I mean, this, this organization now raises millions of dollars now mm-hmm. to help out people especially in the theater who who struggle with this disease i thought and 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 i remember learning about that and i'm like how wonderful how wonderful that out of something horrible this this is what came of it that was our response Mm -hmm. that we we don't have we're not all doctors we can't solve the problem but we are artists and we can do what we can to help others and i think that's a huge social impact when the rest of the world, particularly the people who have the ability to do something to help a community, turned mm-hmm. its back. The theater world, who had been supported for so long by this community, stepped up and continues to step up and take care of its own. Uh-huh. I think that's important. Well, not just its own, but everyone. That's my soapbox. Thank you for coming. <laughs> right. Well, and I also think that, you know, um, this brought to light this, this you know, the LGBTQ plus community. Um you know, it, it's it's rem- it's continues to serve as a forefront and as a reminder that these issues still exist, and you know, there's a lot of different things that come from having a found family. Yeah, it brought the issues that face the community to the forefront, uh, both on and off the stage. You were you were seeing the struggles of of having different parents 
and how others can kind of be close-minded and accept them. And they still, uh, they the, the show fought for issues important to the community, both on and off the stage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, I really like that, that this show wasn't passive, that they didn't just perform or whatnot on the stage. They were very active off the stage too. Mm-hmm. That's important. That's giving back to your community. That's, ta- again, that's taking care of the people that take care of you. Mm-hmm. It also normalized the different relationships and lifestyles that existed within the show, you know? Uh, and yeah. I think that's important, not just, you know, you've got obviously the two, you know, the two dads, this is the same sex couple, but you've also got the the drag performers. Mm-hmm. You've got... Well, the, Jean-Michel's relationship with the drag performers and... Jacqueline's relationship with Alban and George and all, mm-hmm. all of that, all of that. You've got all the... Uh, I don't remember in 2010 if there was, but I do remember there was a dominatrix in the production I worked on. I mean, just all of these different types of people and relationships, it just normalized. It was like, yeah, these are all normal people. They're not demons or... or, or Characters. What, no, what's the one I'm looking for? Like uh, evils and... Yeah. I, no, they're none of those. Deviants. That's deviants, the word I was like. They're yeah, not they're, deviants. They're, they're just normal people that like... Something different than you. Leave them be. They don't hurt you or others. Go away now. Right. And honestly, if you really are interested in learning more about your queer history, um, you know, you can check out backtostonewall.com. That's back with the number two, stonewall.com. Um, they have a lot of history, and it, there's a historian who runs the website who does an excellent job Um and we'll post that website on the episode information. Yeah, but for you really, as well. really, I mean, it's important to know that you know sometimes you have to seek elsewhere for history that's important. Yeah. So, lastly, is this show still relevant? Absolutely, to 100%. me. One hundred percent. It's a beautiful show about love and about acceptance. It's a show about being true to yourself and being honest with yourself and with others. Let me say that again honest with yourself and with others and these are messages that i feel are so important now more than ever mm-hmm. also a show that teaches the uh the acceptance of things you may not yet understand is definitely something we could all use in our lives right now in addition to the simple humble humble show tune i so- mean <laughs> let, 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 let's we need this we need the show back and it's perfect for regional theater. It's perfect for, um, I would say, uh, college theater. I think when you get down to like community theater, it could get hard because the costumes and whatnot. That could get hard. I would not put this in a high school show um, just because I think the material could it's be... It's too complex for high schoolers. Yes. You to know. perform. Yes. They should see it, but they should not perform it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I think parents would have an issue with, with drag. I mean, you have to be drag. You can't put girls in dresses to make yourself feel comfortable. You lose the point of the show. But definitely regional theater is great for it. But I think it's time for a revival here on Broadway. I think we need we need that. Although this is the season of revivals. I'll tell you what. As promised, we wanted to share even more. Uh, no, we're going to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show. Look, you hung in with us this long. We're almost there, right? 
Um, we saw the show once back in 2010, and as I've mentioned, I had the privilege of running the show at Pioneer Theater Company in Salt Lake City, and I just, I did want to mention... It was a, well, the production you did with Pioneer was a, um, oh, what is it called? Concert? A concert version. Yeah, but they don't do no concert version. Like, right, they, they go they, all in. Yeah, like, they hold their books, but I'm like, on my end as a dresser, I was like, we were full costume makeup, mm, girl. I just wanted to share a thought about that production. So I got to work with some wonderful, wonderful actors that I wanted. Now that we've done the show, I, I'm able to give them a shout out, um, including Donovan Hoffer, who played. Um, he was like, uh, I don't know what it's called, but he's he can sing like a soprano. Mm -hmm. And oh, my gosh, he would come to the theater every night already like face beaten, just gorgeous. He was the nicest person in the world. Absolutely a joy to work with. I would pay to work for him. He was so nice. Um, he's an incredible actor. He's played such roles as Mary Sunshine. Um, and I mean, when I say play, like that's what he's like being cast as. But guys, he's on, you can find him on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And I suggest you do so because he does like Alpha, but from Wicked and Hades Town and Into the Woods and Christine from Phantom of the Opera. And he doesn't lip sync this stuff. He full on sings it, but then he decks out in the costumes. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely incredible. So I'm going to try to share a link on our social media to, to them because they're amazing. So it was great to work with him. Um, well, as well as uh, an up and coming actor named Patrick Castle. He was amazing. This is He made his kind of like regional lead debut with Jean-Michel. I went to school with him and he's absolutely wonderful. So shout out to him. And finally, I have to give a shout out to my man, Brandon Contreras, who's living he's a delight. It, <laughs> he's living it up on uh, TikTok. I guarantee you've seen him. I can't think of their, their, their handle, handle or whatever, but they do the, like the gay roommates thing. Mm -hmm. uh, that's amazing. Um, but he played our Jakob and it oh, just, Perfect. He was beyond perfect. And uh, I worked with him on one of my first shows. And so when he came back and I got to be his dresser, I was like, it's it's kissing it. Like, this is amazing. He, I just loved how extra he loved to be. Um, and we were always nervous about that final quick change when he finally got to be in the show, you know, and he got to get all dragged up. And so he was always nervous. He would never make it, but he always made it. And he beat his face to the mm -hmm. gods where everybody else is just told her and just you know, get in your quick drag and get out there. He was like, I don't quick drag nothing. And he was just like back there, <laughs> fake eyelashes and everything. He would go out flawless and perfect just for that end number. And I was like, I love you, Brandon. Like you <laughs> get it. I want to be you. So <laughs> the show was amazing though. Just all the costumes, all the makeup, all the fake eyelashes. It was incredible. So that's that. Moving on. 2010. Oh, wait. I also want to give a quick shout out. Um, the person who designed the costumes is actually a well-known drag queen. Oh, yes. Herself, yes. Tempest Jour, which oh. I love their costume design. Like, Tempest, mm, Patrick, you make the best. Truly. Like, I, you're one of my top favorite costume designers Truly. out there. Um, I got to do a couple different shows with Tempest. Um, they, of course, didn't go by Tempest. They went by their real name, which is Patrick. <laughs> but, you know, it was just a pleasure. And those costumes were everything I wanted. Yeah. It, they, yeah. I can't, I can't praise them enough for just all their brilliance. And uh, it was a joy to work with them. 
Um, back to the 2010 show, though. Uh, we got to meet Robin de Jesus, which was a big deal for me because I first saw Robin de Jesus in the movie Camp when I was a kid. Great, like, cult classic indie film. And I was like, I love this person. This is great. And then, like, getting to see him on stage, I was like, oh, my God, I've loved you since blah, blah, blah. You know. And then getting to meet Kelsey Grammer. Mm-hmm. Or as you call him, Sideshow Bob. Listen, I call him Kelsey Grammer to his face. As I know him, many <laughs> other shows. And then Douglas Hodge as well. And they were mm-hmm. all so nice. And when we saw Douglas Hodge, it was like right, like really shortly after they won the Tony. Yeah. And and it, fun fact, we found out from him that Kelsey Grammer and Douglas Hodge both learned each other's part as well. So every now and then they would switch roles. And so sometimes Kelsey Grammer would go on as Albin and Douglas Hodge would go on as George. No, I couldn't find anywhere that was printed that had that, that it happened, but I like to believe it did. Yeah. Uh, I thought the show, and I remember the show being beautiful and just getting sucked in. And I love the remodel of the theater and the creation of the club. I just, this was a win for me. A 100%. Quick save. Top to bottom. As we continue our return to the theater, we greatly look forward to returning to see the show again. Hopefully you'll be able to catch La Caja Falls somewhere at a theater near you this year. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Mela, Kevin McLeod, Milton R.A.S., Music for Wildlife, and Billy Murray.